You're listening to the North Canton Chapel podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The North Canton Chapel exists to make much of Jesus every day to everyone. It's our prayer that this podcast will equip you to do just that. We believe that there's nothing like the church united together in gospel community. We'd love if you'd stop in and say hello in person if you're in our neighborhood. Our gathering times are at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Thank you again for joining us today. Let's listen in. Well, good morning, good morning again. Good to see you guys. You guys know that I'm a sucker for a good quote. I love a good quote. I love a good one-liner. And uh, one of my recent favorites, uh, at least it's recent to me, comes from uh, Augustine. Augustine lived in like the fourth century, so I'm like still playing catch up with some of this stuff. So here's what Augustine said. Here it is. God's word is shallow enough for a child to wade, deep enough for an elephant to swim. Isn't that great? Like sometimes like God's word, I, I, like I just can't take the depth and sometimes I just need something where I'm not going to drown in it, you know? And there's sometimes where I'm like, okay, I'm ready. This is a very, very deep place that I can't quite see the bottom of. Now here's why I bring that up. Uh, where we're going to be this morning, 1 Peter chapter 3, is one of those elephants can swim here places. <laughs> It's powerful because it's personal. It's controversial because it's countercultural. It's challenging because it's just so tough to live this one out. And I can't wait to get into it. This last couple of weeks, we've been talking about this idea of submission to authority. And what does this actually look like? And now Peter is going to bring this so uncomfortably close, right? Here's the deal you know this we live in a broken world. We live in a world that's marked by pain and division and needs healing and needs restoration. And the question is, how do you do it? And the Christian message is Jesus. And that sounds really reductionistic. I know that. That sounds really dismissive. I know that. But that's really the crux of the Christian message, is that life lived in obedience to Jesus in whatever sphere actually promotes healing and restoration. And so this morning we're talking about the home. We're talking about wives, and we're talking about husbands. This is our sixth week in a 10-week series in 1 Peter. We just rounded a halfway point, and here's where we're going this morning. First thing, we're going to read all seven of these verses right up front. Normally, we don't do that. We just kind of one at a time it. But we're going to read this whole chunk up front. Then we're going to unfold it and look at it one by one to figure out, like, what is Peter actually saying here? And then I'm going to get you four principles just right from the text that I think are transferable in no matter what culture you're in. And then we're going to wrap up by giving you something you can do about it. Okay, so that's where, that's where we're going. So elephant swimming beach. Here you go. First Peter chapter 3. You can turn there, flip there, scroll there. You can follow along on the screen behind me. Here's what he says. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, braiding of hair, putting on gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Your translation may say very costly. 
For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Oh boy, we'll get to that. And you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. That's a very important point we're going to come back to. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the uh weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you to the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Now, when you read this text, I imagine little red flags start flying up. They do for me. So let me be personal. When I read this text, several things make me go, hang on a minute. I can think of three. I want to name them because I think this might actually be helpful for us. First tension I feel is the subject itself. So Peter's talking about men and women, specifically wives and husbands. And before he even gets to what he's saying about that, I hardly need to tell you that the subject is controversial. It's a hot potato, right? Like, Here's, yeah, depending on your personality, you wish you could just go like, I don't want to touch the potato, Peter, just like let this thing go. Incidentally, here's one of the benefits of preaching systematically or expositionally through God's word is if you do that long enough, you're going to come across these hot potatoes, and this is one of them. So Peter's saying that men and women are different, and we don't even have to take another step before we feel the pressure cooker, don't we? A little bit. The second tension that I feel is not just that Peter's talking about this. It's what he's saying about it. It's not enough just to say that they are different. Now he's going to talk about how they are different. And just to name the elephant in the room, all of that tension kind of finds its high point in the middle of verse 7 where he calls women the what? Ha. And like part of me goes like, Peter, dude, like, mm-mm. Like maybe you want to take it down a notch. Don't say that. Shh. If there's anything in us that resists the conversation, there's definitely something in us that resists that kind of language. And I'm, mm, just my reaction. Third tension that pops up in my mind, and maybe you caught this as you read it, was did you notice the vast amount of real estate difference between wives and husbands? Like six whole verses devoted to her and her role, not a whole lot of which is easy. And then like this passing little comment just like this one little verse to men and their role. Like, just on the face of it, like on a literary level, this looks misogynistic. Like, it looks like Peter, as a man, is taking a lot of delight in telling women what they should do and just like, oh, guys, just be nice. <laughs> like, what that would mean is like, if you can imagine, so Mandy and I, if we did premarital counseling with a couple, and we said, great, we got seven sessions. Six of them are devoted to you and your role. One's devoted to him. You might rightly conclude that this is a little one-sided. So those are my tensions, and you may have more. You may have different ones, but here's the point. When reading God's word, it does very little good for me to ignore my tensions. little Bible study tip for you. Not to sweep them under the carpet or go, eh, I'll just pretend that's not in there. That doesn't do you a whole lot of good. It is far better to be honest when you read God's word and say, God, I don't like how this lands. I don't like what this makes me feel. I don't know what to do with this. This doesn't sit well, but God, I know you and I love you 
and you are good, and so therefore I know your word must be good. You see the difference? Don't push past these things. So here's what we're going to do with this. Next, like I told you, we're going to look at the text. What's he talking about? And then we're going to pull four principles from the text. And then I'm going to give you some stuff you can do about it in response. So with all of that, let's jump in together. Back to verse 1. Let's take a look at it again. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands so that, there's his purpose clause in there, the reason for doing this, even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their Wives. So, just take a look at what's here. First things first. Who is Peter talking to? Husbands or wives? Wives. Specifically, wives of unbelieving husbands. Okay, you caught that. Even if some do not obey the word. So, in first century Rome, Peter's audience, the idea that a wife would have a religion different from her husband would be unthinkable. But that's what he's talking about here. There's a document called Advice to the Bride and Groom, written about 120 A.D., okay? We have a wedding that Mandy and I are doing this weekend, and um, this would be terrible advice, by the way. We're not doing this for those of you that are getting married this weekend. Don't ever put this in a wedding card. Here's what it says. Advice to the Bride and Groom, 120 A.D. The wife should not acquire her own friends, but rather she should look to her husband's friends. The gods are the first and foremost of her friends. For this reason, it is proper for a wife to recognize only the gods whom her husband worships. That's the situation that Peter is writing to. Women who have found Jesus living in mixed affection marriages. She's with Jesus. He's not yet. And into that situation, Peter says, be subject. And you go, what? Come on, Peter, no more of this stuff. So what does he mean? Does he mean, wives, be dutiful and do whatever your husband says? No. Does he mean that husbands should look at their wives and say, you are just a subservient being who exists to do my bidding, and right now my bidding is that you worship my gods and go in the kitchen and make me a sandwich? No. Of course not. That's not what he means there. Quick insight. You should be very suspicious of any model of marriage that gives you less dignity than Jesus does. So a couple quick correctives. What be subject does not mean. First, be subject does not mean agreeing on everything. I want you to feel a little bit of freedom in this. Clearly here, she doesn't agree with them on a very fundamental issue. She's a Christian, he's not. Be subject doesn't mean agreeing on everything. Be subject does not mean that a wife cannot influence her husband. Here, Peter says, win him. Influence him. Be subject doesn't mean that she's reduced to this voiceless person, this soulless whatever, and just whatever he says goes. She's strong. Incidentally, I love it when, in the context of our marriage, Mandy goes, hey, I I appreciate what you're doing. Have you considered this? And we're going to get to you husbands in a minute. If that posture offends you, we're going to talk about why. But that is a gracious thing for a woman to feel that she can actually influence her husband when he is wrong. We're going to talk about what that might look like. So if that's not what be subject means, what does it mean? 
I'm going to give you a quick definition. I'm going to go super slow, because if you're taking notes, this may be helpful for you. Submission, at least as I see it, according to this text, is a willful decision, a willful decision, born out of love for Christ. That's important. A willful decision, born out of love for Christ, to support her husband's leadership, to support her husband's leadership when possible. I'll put this together. A willful decision born out of love for Christ to support her husband's leadership when possible. Peter is not saying that Christian wives should submit to their husbands as if they were property or chattel. He's simply implying that God's leadership structures exist in all areas of life. That's where he's been the last couple of weeks. And he's saying there is a leadership structure for the home and ultimate leadership lies with the husband under Christ. But I think it's worth to note here, before we get too far ahead, it's worth noting what Peter does not say. He does not say that the husband has the right to demand submission from his wife. That's important. This should be done willingly. And the implication here, which we'll get to in a minute, when we get to husbands, is that he ought to strive to become the kind of man that she can willingly, eagerly, joyfully follow. But now here's where it gets really good. Back to the text. Peter follows that be subject with a purpose. I know you saw that in verse 1. So that even if some do not obey the word, unbelieving husbands, they may be one without a word. What a clever turn of phrase, isn't that? Even if they don't obey the word, they may be one without a word. There's evangelism in view here. Here's his point. Just like we said last week in relation to civil authorities, people may never read a Bible, but they are always reading your life. It's very hard to argue with character. It's very easy to argue with position. People will forget sermons. They forget sermons every week, much to my own chagrin. But they never forget the kind of person who practices what they preach. But then there's the second command in verse 3, where Peter unloads some culturally bound images. And we need to see this. Verse 3, he says, Do not let your adorning be external. And then he lists these three things. Braiding of hair, gold jewelry, and clothing that you wear. Followed by a contrast in verse 4, where he says, Not this, but... Let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. And Peter sets up this clever wordplay here where he says, this stuff deteriorates. All this outside stuff deteriorates. This stuff doesn't. Your identity isn't found out here. Your identity is found in here, which is much more permanent where the world values materialism and self-assertion and sex obsession, Peter says, cultivate this. Then, as if anticipating some pushback, Peter turns to the Old Testament for his support in verse 5. For this is how holy women who hoped in God, past tense, so he's looking over his shoulder, used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. And you're like, man, I was with you until you said that Lord part, and I'm out. Nope, not doing that. (laughs) So just to alleviate any tension around that, Peter is not saying that Christian wives should call their husbands Lord. Okay? That's not a proper interpretation of this text. 
Something I think that's very helpful for this section, and I think it'll be helpful for a lot of places, especially in 1 Peter. There's the principle, submission to authorities is what he's talking about, a willful decision born out of love for Christ to support a husband's leadership whenever possible. The principle, and then there's the practice. The practice, which in Sarah's world meant calling Abraham Lord, contextually which translated into, you're the leader I recognize. Okay, that's what that means. So there's the principle over here, and there's the practice over here. Now here's the thing, and I think this will be helpful. The principle doesn't change. This is, this is pan-cultural. The idea of submission in marriage is not culturally bound. But the practice is. It does change. The principle of submission is always in place. This is how God sets things up. But how submission works itself out, though, is in some way and should always be culturally informed. Submission in 2022 United States does not mean calling your husband Lord. That's terrible. And if you do that, you're off. And husbands, if you demand that, you're probably sick. It's not right. And that kind of oppressive do-what-I-say kind of thing. Mm -mm. And we'll talk about why in a minute. It may look like, willingly, out of love for Christ, saying, you know what? I'm choosing to trust you on this. It may look like saying, okay, because I know you follow the Lord, if you want to take that job, even if it means moving, I'm okay with it. It may mean like, because I believe that you are pressing into what the Lord wants for our lives. If you want to refinance, I'm okay with it. It may mean, because you're seeking his will, I will follow. And that's ideal. That's not what Peter's talking about here, though, too, right? Because he's talking about this mixed affection marriage. Here's what Peter's doing. He commends Sarah, and he holds Sarah up as an example. Why? Three characteristics, and then we're going to get to what he has to say for you husbands. So you just sit tight for a second, guys, because you're not off the hook. <laughs> Three characteristics, why he commends Sarah. First off, she's holy. You see that in the top of verse 5. For this is how the holy women, right? In this context, holy doesn't mean perfect. Holy means set apart. This is Peter looking backward to Sarah saying, she was different. She wasn't like other women. She stood out. How? She hopes in God. Specifically, the believing wife of an unbelieving husband shows her hope in God. She doesn't hope in herself. She doesn't hope in her husband, clearly. Her hope isn't in some overcooked version of cultural femininity. Her hope is in God, and that makes her stand out such that she is not a tragedy to pity. She is a model to admire. She's holy. Second characteristic of Sarah is she does good. She does good. See this toward the end of verse 6. You're her children if you do good. This, this phrase, do good, is one of Peter's favorites. It shows up seven times in this letter. We hit a couple of them last week. This speaks to her character. She's proactively seeking the good of other people. And I think this is worth saying here, that this is of her own initiative, her self-leadership that drives her to do this. And it's, it's an attribute, a characteristic for which she should be commended. She's not self-oriented. She's others-oriented. This unexpected and unexplained goodness 
is the greatest apologetic that Jesus is with her. She does good. So she's holy, she does good. And speaking of the fact that Jesus is with her, characteristic number three, and I love this one, this is my favorite one, she is fearless. Did you catch that at the end of verse six? If you do not fear anything that is frightening, we can't miss this. We're going to come back to it when we hit these four principles again in a minute. But I want to stop here because I think it's worth acknowledging that the godly wife is fearless. She's not easily intimidated. She's not one to be backed into a corner. And here's the thing. She's fearless because she knows the Lord. There's this great scene um, in um, Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Or Aslan, if you remember. Aslan is the heroic lion who's this Christ type. He represents Jesus as he protects and leads and serves and ultimately dies for the four Pevernsey children. There's this great scene where Lucy, who's the youngest of the four, is terrified. She's overwhelmed. She's intimidated. She can't see a way out. She's frozen in fear. And then out of nowhere... Aslan appears. And after having some endearing moments, Aslan says this beautiful line to Lucy. C.S. Lewis drops this amazing line of dialogue. He says, and now, daughter, I am about to roar. You better plug your ears. Now, here's why I offer that as a picture of biblical femininity. Two reasons. One, Woman has no need to be fearless because of the Lord. But then two, as we turn to husbands, if you are a man who uses fear, you should be very afraid of the Lord. He will roar in her defense, if not now, ultimately later, and his roar is not soft. So a Christian wife is holy, she does good, and she is fearless. And so with that said, let's shift over to what Peter has to say to husbands. Here you go, guys. Verse 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So, first word, likewise. This is Peter signaling a shift in tone a little bit, a shift in direction. And again, right off the bat, it jumps out to us like six verses for women, one for men. And so here's my quick analysis of that for you. Before husbands, you breathe a sigh of relief. You need to see this. Peter's words for us may be shorter in word count, but they are very heavy in weight. And Peter's about to tell us why. So, verse 7, keep looking at it. What do we see here? Four things. First, we see this command verb. He says, live with your wives in an understanding way. That's this command, an imperative verb. Then, how are you supposed to do that? He's showing honor to her as the weaker vessel. We are coming back to that. Then his theological point where he says, since you are co-heirs. It's a very big deal. And then he closes this out with the reason for all of this, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So let's take each one in turn, and this is just my quick take. Things get progressively more beautiful as we go. So first, the command. He says, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Now, the word live with is only found here in the New Testament, and it refers to the whole picture of life 
together. This is budget meetings, text conversations, financial planning, grade reports, hanging pictures on the wall, everything in the bedroom, all of that in an understanding way. Now, first, this might seem kind of soft, like, oh, just be considerate, be thoughtful, don't be reckless. But the Greek actually has a much different, richer, stronger emphasis. Read literally, it's this. Live with your wives according to knowledge. Live with your wives according to knowledge. Well, it kind of begs the question, according to what knowledge? For Peter, this is not just factual knowledge. Like, oh, she's a woman, so therefore this. Nuh-uh. Peter's much different than that. This is relational knowledge that leads to a posture of care. This is a husband being so devoted to his wife that he studies her, he learns her, he knows what makes her tick and what ticks her off. (laughs) And this is Peter saying, look, whether your wife is introverted, extroverted, eager or reserved, expressive or quiet, whether she loves surprises or hates surprises, whether she wants a beach vacation or the right kind of vacation, a cabin in the woods, Mandy's here for second service, so I'm okay for a minute. You take all of that, you learn her, so that you can lead her. And this is a husband that takes great delight in learning who she is and then letting that inform how he leads her. Here's a quick little leadership principle, and our staff has heard me say this about all kinds of stuff. It definitely applies in marriage. Here it is. If you want to lead them, you must learn them. That applies to almost everything. If you want to learn them, you must love them. If you want to love them, you must serve them. That's this unbroken line of how you actually, in my view, become a healthy leader. Not by position. If you want to lead them, you must learn them. If you want to learn them, you must love them. If you want to love them, you must serve them. There is no shortcut. Now, what's that like, Peter? Great question. The second part of this text. Honoring your wife is like showing honor to a weaker vessel. Now, we've got to get our heads around this, or else you're going to leave this morning thinking that Peter is some kind of chauvinist and that God's word is a document drenched in misogyny, neither of which are right. So in what sense does he mean that women is a weaker vessel? Nothing in the New Testament, absolutely nothing, shows that women are weaker intellectually, spiritually, morally, ethically, emotionally. In fact, the New Testament actually teaches that gender in no way limits access to Christ or maturity in Christ. So the most natural reading of this, weaker vessel, is to take it to mean that women are generally weaker than men physically. And that's probably all he means here. Generally, that's true. And that physical weakness, generally, should prompt husbands to greater consideration. Um, Matt Chandler, who's one of my favorite uh, teaching pastors, uses this analogy. And if I had a better one, I'd use it. I'm not, so I'm just going to steal it and credit him for it. In his house, he tells the story of two plates. There's two kinds of plates in his house. And some of you may have heard this before. I think it's just quite beautiful. He says, we've got the plastic plates. Those are the ones that show up 
for pizza nights on the living room floor. They got them for $1.50 at Walmart. Some of you have these kind of plates in your house. We do, right? You can replace them. They're fine. They make their way for Frisbees out in the backyard for the dogs, right? You can put them in the dishwasher on high heat, and they're going to melt, and then you can replace them. Then there's Grandma's China. Grandma's China comes out for different occasions. Grandma's China is used very carefully. It's employed deliberately, not because it is somehow weaker or deficient or not able, but because it was created for a different purpose, and it is worthy of honor because of that difference. That's this. Then there's the third part in this. Peter backs all of this up with this wonderful theological truth. He says, do all of this since... They are heirs with you in the grace of life. Don't speed past that. Don't get lost in what that means. Culturally, in first century Rome, the religion of the husband was the only one that mattered. He counted. He was the breadwinner, always. He had access to the temples. He came first. He held the power. Not so in the church. Unlike Rome, in the church, because of Christ, men and women are equal sharers of the gospel. And when it comes to salvation, there is no distinction. Paul talks about this. This is all over the New Testament. This was massively countercultural for Peter's day. God wants us to understand that the primary way that men should view women is not as objects or trophies, but as co-heirs and equal inheritors. So let me push this a little further into our world for a second. Here's what this means for us. Men, and I mean this for unmarried men, engaged men, married for 50 years. Your wife exists as more than the object of your sexual desire. Women are image bearers, loved by Christ. They are fellow partakers in the gospel, and that is why they are worthy of honor, not accommodation, not a little pat on the head. Honor, because Jesus sees them that way. Last piece of this text, and then we're going to get to these principles. First, or last piece, Peter's reason for saying this. You caught that, didn't you, at the very end? So that your prayers may not be hindered. There is a really strong connection, I've learned, in 18 years of marriage, between my relationship with Mandy and my relationship with the Lord. Usually one signifies the other. I know how well one is going by how well the other one is going. True story, I once... um, I sat with my man, uh, man in my office, and he complained about his nagging wife. And he said, I can't believe this. She wants me home every night before 9. She wants me to never go to a bar again. She wants me to respond to her texts all the time. I think she's being unreasonable. And what I said in response was, if you think she's being unreasonable, wait till you hear what Jesus calls you to. Pick up your cross, deny yourself, follow me. And I don't say that to tough talk or to be like a tough talking whatever, but here's the point. As a husband, listen to me, guys, you have authority. You do. But it is authority on loan from God. You have no authority in yourself. 
It is authority on loan from God. And he will not bless those in authority who misuse their authority. How many men live in our marriage and let our marriage reveal and also shape our relationship with the Lord? That's the calling here. So let's pull back. We're going to hit these four principles, and then I'm going to give you something we can do, and then we'll, we'll wrap up. Principle number one. When it comes to gender, Christ-likeness is the goal. Now, I'm not talking about gender dysphoria or other aspects of gender identity here. What I have in mind here is what does it mean to be a woman and what does it mean to be a man and where do those ideas come from? And just like in Peter's day where women could reach for external adornment for security and men could reach for oppressive lordship over their wives, there's this real strong temptation to take our cues for femininity and masculinity from our culture and try and like cram them into our Christian life. And here's what we need to remember. Femininity and masculinity both belong to the Lord. He has the vision for what those mean. Femininity is neither this like overly submissive, soulless, voiceless June cleaver, nor is it this hypersexualized, perfect body worship of current celebrity. Both of those are distortions of what God wants for women. Similarly, masculinity is not, not this like frat boy humor, reductionistic, tough guy John Wayne smoking a stogie riding down the street on a Harley. Neither is masculinity this dullard couch potato Homer Simpsonification of manhood. Neither of those are right. Those are both distortions informed by our culture and twisted by our culture. And I think it's worth stopping to recognize that we all have that somewhere in here just because we grew up here. Part of our sanctification is getting those splinters out in a world where there's wildly veering extremes in desperate need of balance, enter the gospel. Jesus is the goal. Christ-likeness is the standard. He is the one that we look to. And that usually is going to look weird because you're shooting for something that the culture doesn't recognize. But we need to be so deeply, and if needs be, so annoyingly in love with him that we kick the cultural cues to the curb and follow our Lord. You'd be willing to do that. That's principle number one. Speaking of correcting cultural narratives, principle number two. Using leverage to get power is anti-gospel. So what do I mean by leverage? Husband and wives, wives and husbands, both have gender distinctives that when we get sideways, when we get twisted, can be used as pathways for power rather than steps for serving. Here's what I mean. If you use fear or threats or emotional manipulation as a way of getting control over your spouse, because you know you can intimidate your spouse and you kind of like that feeling. If you handle the finances and you use money as a way to control your spouse because you know the internet passwords, you know the cash flow. Maybe you're the breadwinner and you make all the money and so you like that you get to say what goes where and you enjoy telling your spouse no. If you're married with kids and you use your kids as leverage 
Like, because you get the school emails, you know the schedules, you know the grades, and your disconnected, disheartened spouse doesn't, and you're going to use that as a reminder to tell them what a terrible person they are. If you're married and you use sex as a reward, well, I'll do this for you if you do that for me. Or if you use it as a weapon, do this or we're never doing that again. Those are all examples of leverage, some of them arising from gender distinctives in our culture. And if those postures are true of you, here's what you need to know. You don't have a problem with your spouse, you have a problem with the Lord. You don't need your spouse to do whatever you want. You need Jesus to give you what only he can. You are insecure and you need to find your security in Jesus. If you thirst for power over your spouse, rather than embodying God's call to serve them with the heart of Jesus, they are not the problem, you are the problem. And you can get help, but you've got to make the first step. Using leverage to get power is anti-gospel. We serve because he served. Pushing this further, and I feel like we have to take this step just a bit this morning. So if you're watching online or you're here this morning and you're currently living in an abusive situation, please hear me. God will never ask you to submit to someone out of fear for what might happen to you if you don't. Fear is never God's language. It is not God's will for you. This past week, I sat down with um, a friend of mine who is very wise and asked her counsel. I said, so, and she's trained to deal with those and walk alongside those who are dealing with domestic abuse situations. And I said, okay, I, this is coming out of this text and it's on my heart. Tell me what, what is the best first step? And she said it. She goes, well, sometimes the best first step is to take a first step. And so here's what I want to do. I want to put two numbers on the screen. Your first step might look like calling the National Domestic Violence Hotline. I'm going to leave these up here for a minute. There's a phone number, or you can text START to 88788. This could be your first step. Or locally, there's a great resource, the Domestic Violence Project, and there's their phone number. I want to leave these up here. And so if you're watching online this morning, those phone numbers are going to appear in the comment thread, and also a helpful article is going to appear with a link. Um, that'll help you, what you, help you know what you need to do to get out and get safe. If you're here and you're going, okay, well, how do I get that article? You can head to ncchapel.com resources, and there's some stuff there for you. And maybe if you're wondering, like, is this me? Because maybe you're going, I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe nah, that's, that's not me. If you're wondering, make the call. And maybe just have a conversation. Leverage to get power in any form is against the gospel. Principle number three. Loyalty to Jesus outweighs loyalty to spouse. Put another way, submission has its limits. Okay? If an unbelieving spouse says, hey, we need to watch some porn so we can spice up our sex life, no, I'm with Jesus. If an unbelieving spouse wants you to cheat on your taxes, you say, no, I'm, I'm with Jesus on this. If an unbelieving spouse says, I forbid you from going to church, or they make fun of you for doing it, Sorry, I belong to him. Now, this is an incredibly hard scenario, and it's not one that we should mention lightly. It's exactly what Peter is talking about here. This takes courage and wisdom, and it usually takes counsel and community. And so a quick word on this. When a believing spouse experiences spiritual distance from an unbelieving spouse, which is what Peter is talking about here, 
That is a prime opportunity for the church to step up, lean in, and support them in meaningful ways. Not to supplant or replace the spouse, but to support their believing brother or sister in prayer, community, love, and usually wise counsel. And I say that because this is way more common than we might imagine. And I'm so very proud of several in our church who have taken the hard road of pointing suffering spouses to Jesus and providing a deep soul care level of support. This is why we say so often that the church is not a place you go or a, or a building you go or an event you, in a, you attend. So that's principle number three. Loyalty to Jesus outweighs loyalty to spouse. Principle number four. Health is cumulative. Peter paints this wonderful picture of, of marital health, doesn't he? <laughs> Here's the thing. I know what we want. We want this to be like a light switch thing. Right? We want marriage to just be like, oh, let's just turn the thing and let's start off the road. The truth is marital health is like a muscle. It takes time. It takes initiative. It takes intentionality. And you just got to start. And so where do you start? I'm going to give you three tips, and then we're going to wrap up. Health is cumulative. How do you do that? Here's three things. First, look in the mirror. Look in the mirror. The danger of preaching messages like this, there's a lot, I know that. One of the dangers of preaching messages like this is that some of you hear this and go, gosh, respectful, quiet spirit, pure conduct, doesn't sound like my wife, nudge, right? Don't do that, that's childish. Or caring husband who learns me so he can lead me, selfless servant, not this guy, when Jesus talked about removing the log from our eye before removing the speck in our neighbors, here's what that might mean in relation to marriage. Often, not always, often, the best place to start repairing a broken marriage is yourself. I make a massive exception in the context of an abusive situation because that is the lie that you might believe that that is about you. And it's not. So what is Jesus calling you to do this does not excuse the other person, nor does it acquit them of wrong. It just means that we are often quicker to see the problem in others than in ourselves, and we are way more prone to exaggerate the level of wrong in others than in ourselves. Principle number two, adjust your expectations. Adjust your expectations. Most people, I find, feel really good on their wedding day, right? I mean, there's nervousness, like I know we did, we felt really good. We felt confident. We were prayed up. We had the support of family and friends. We felt strong. We felt confident. But how many of you married people know that there's nothing like marriage to expose your weaknesses? <laughs> there's nothing like marriage to expose how selfish and arrogant and how self-oriented you are just as a person. And when that happens, in the context of even the healthiest of marriages, when you're presented with those realities, you've got a choice. You can either try and sweep them under the rug. You can pretend they're not there. You can blame the other person, none of which work. Or you can see those weaknesses, those shortcomings, those vulnerabilities as opportunities to remind you that you are only human. You are far from perfect, and you need somebody else to get you through this. I guess what I'm saying is don't expect from your spouse what you can only get from Jesus. Speaking of which, Tip number three, and with this we're going to wrap up. Get close to Jesus. If you want a healthy marriage, get close to Jesus. The Christian method, message, like I said, is simply this. The greatest need that anybody has is Christ. And when I read Peter's words, the thing that just jumps out to me is I can't do this on my own. 
I'm married to Mandy. Today's actually our 18th wedding anniversary. And, yeah. I don't deserve the applause. She does. Like, that's, that's, she's, yeah. But when I read those words and I go, Brandon, live with Mandy in an understanding way, showing honor to Mandy, because Mandy is a co-heir of the grace of life, the gospel. I am more daunted by those words now, 18 years later, like with a pile of mistakes over my shoulder, some of which are still smoldering, than I was when I was a 23-year-old newlywed know-it-all. Here's my point. I do think that marriages, like when you think about it in theory, every marriage is set up to fail, right? Because you got a selfish person marrying a selfish person. It's like tying two sinking ships together and saying, yeah, this will float. Like, how are you going to do that? Who's the one that softens a hard heart? Who is the one that humbles a prideful heart? Who is the one that gives life to a dying heart? It's Christ and Christ alone. I'm going to talk about this more later this fall. One of the most beautiful things about marriage is that it is just a living drama of the gospel itself. You cannot do this without Christ. You do not need another book. You do not need another counseling session. You do not need another weekend away. Those might be good. They may be good. And they may be helpful. But nothing replaces Christ. So here's where we're going to go. Um, worship team, you guys can come back on. I know they're, they're lurking and listening. And So what I want to do is I want to give you guys a moment. Um, we don't do this kind of stuff a lot. Um, but I want to ask you, sometimes, I believe that the physical can sometimes be a catalyst for the spiritual. And so maybe this morning, like, you're hearing us walk through this text, and you go, gosh, I, I, I need to give some things over to the Lord. Maybe I need to repent of some things that, like, I've been doing wrong. Maybe I've been that, I've not been that husband. Maybe I've been that wife. And, Lord, I need you to help me in this. And so I'm going to ask you, the band's going to play after I pray. And maybe you want to come up here and just kneel at the altar and, no one's going to look at you funny. I think anybody else who's married knows that's a strong, courageous thing to do. And maybe if you're single and you go, gosh, I, I want to pray for those that I know that are hurting. I invite you. You can come forward and pray on their behalf or you can stay seated. That's fine. I want to take a moment and just say, okay, Lord, have your way. I want to build my life on you and what you have to say. If you're really courageous, I want to challenge you. Come up here with your spouse. Maybe just take a few moments and pray together out loud. Just Put your elbows on the wood and just say, okay, I'm going to be here for a few moments. For those at home watching online, just maybe take a few moments on your couch and pray. Let's pray together, can we? Lord, in these moments, I pray that you would dislodge our pride. Help us to see that we can all grow, that we need to be better in these things. Not by psyching ourselves up, but by humbling ourselves, by becoming obedient to you. Lord, we love you. We say thank you for the grace of the gospel that makes this possible. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of the North Canton Chapel Podcast. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please share this episode with your friends or spread the word on social media. If you subscribe and leave a five-star review, it goes a long way to helping us make much of Jesus every day to everyone who hears these podcast episodes. You can also donate to this ministry at nchapel.com forward slash give. Thanks again for joining us. May you go out into your places and spaces making much of Jesus every day to everyone.